This review, please note that this is the second part of a two-part review on the Dark Tower Part 4, Wizard and Glass. So if you have not listened to the first part, make sure that you go back on the feed, listen to Part 1, before heading on over here to Part 2. So everyone that has listened to Part 1 already, here we go! Part 3, Come Reap. Chapter 1, Beneath the Huntress Moon. King opens up this chapter with dread-filled passage after dread-filled passage. This isn't to say that there isn't beauty to it, because there is, and King, having been a New Englander, knows the essence of seasons. And this isn't something that I've spoken of much, not specifically in this regard, but his work on crafting the seasons is impeccable. It's more than just describing the seasons, it's just, it's capturing what they are. I meant to talk about that in the Insomnia review, but I just, I completely forgot. See, in Insomnia, he captured an aspect of the fall that you just don't really see popularized much. Usually stories set in the fall are always crisp, leaves strewn, or in the skeletal grips of the Halloween season. Insomnia instead captured that breezy blend of a dying summer with a strengthening fall, where everything is a mix of warm and cool, and everything seems to be on fire. Here, he captions the transition of the seasons on another world, and he does so wonderfully on page 341 to 342. Some called Huntress the last moon of the summer, some call it the first fall. Whichever it was, it signaled a change in the life of the barony. Men put into the bay wearing sweaters beneath their oil skins as the winds began to turn more and more firmly into the autumn's east-west alley and to sharpen as they turned. In the great barony orchard, or, orchards north of Hambry and in smaller orchards owned by John Croydon, Henry Wertner, Jake White, and the morose but wealthy Coral Thornton, the pickers began to appear in the rows, carrying their odd off-kilter ladders, they were followed by horse-drawn carts full of empty barrels. Downwind of the cider houses, especially downwind of the great barony cider mansion a mile north of Seafront, the breezy air was filled with the sweet tang of blems being pressed by the basket load. Away from the shore of the clean sea, the days remained warm as the huntress waxed. Skies were clear day and night, but summer's real heat had departed with the peddler. The last cutting of hay began and was finished in the run of a week. That last one was always scant and ranchers and freeholders alike would curse it, scratching their heads and asking themselves why they even bothered. But come rainy, blowsy old March, with the barn lofts and bins rapidly emptying, they always knew. In the barony's gardens, the great ones of the ranchers, the smaller ones of the freeholders, and the tiny backyard plots of the townsfolk, 
Men and women and children appeared in their old clothes and boots, their sombreros and sombreras. They came with the legs of their pants tied down firmly at the ankles, for in the time of the huntress, snakes and scorpions in plentiful numbers wandered east from the desert. By the time old demon moon began to fatten, a line of rattlers would hang from the hitching posts of both the traveler's rest and the mercantile across the street. Other businesses would similarly decorate their hitching posts, but when the prize for the most skins was given on reaping day, it was always the inn or the market that won it. In the fields and the gardens, baskets to pick into were cast along the rows by women with their hair tied up in kerchiefs and reap charms hidden in their bosoms. The last of the tomatoes were picked, the last of the cucumbers, the last of the corn, the last of the peri and mingo. Waiting behind them, as the days sharpened and the autumn storms began to near, would come squash, sharp-root pumpkins, and potatoes. In Mayhis, the time of reaping had begun, while overhead, clearer and clearer on each starry night, the huntress pulled her bow and looked east over those strange, watery leagues no man or woman of Midworld had ever seen. Then, after an extended metaphor of Roland and Susan being drug addicts, drunk in their love for each other, we cut to Bert and Elaine, who discuss Roland's distraction lately. It would be natural if King had decided to craft a love triangle, with Susan coming between Roland and Bert, but he has no intention. The two pages he spends here is the most he's going to dedicate to that idea. The bond between friends is just too strong to allow such jealousies to get in the way. However, they still have a right to remain worried that Roland won't be as focused on the mission as he would be if he hadn't fallen in love with Susan. Then, when we check in with the big coffin hunters, King confirms that the mayor's right-hand man, Kimba Reimer, and not the mayor himself, is the one funding the big coffin hunters' operation. Reimer and Jonas discuss the boys and what to do with them, while elsewhere, we check back in with our wild card of the bunch, Rhea the Coos, who has no loyalty to John Farson, who has no monetary stake in the rebellion or whether or not the big coffin hunter's plans go smoothly. She's the real danger here, because she's motivated solely by self-interest. And having seen her original plan to humiliate Susan come undone, she's spurred on for revenge. Chapter 2. The Girl at the Window Roland and Bert make plans to head into town to let Sheriff Avery know which farms they'll be counting in order to keep up their cover and keep the game going. It's a segment that shows how Bert and Elaine have to manage Roland now that he's in love. As they head out, they pass by Susan's place, and it's where the famous girl in the window image comes from. <clears throat> Roland looked up and saw Susan sitting in her window, a bright vision in the gray light of that fall morning. His heart leaped up, and although he didn't know it then, it was how he would always remember her most clearly forever after. Lovely Susan, the girl at the window. So do we pass the ghosts that haunt us later in our lives? They sit undramatically by the roadside like poor beggars, and we see them from the corners of our eyes if we see them at all. The idea that they have been waiting there for us rarely ever crosses our minds. Yet they do wait. And when we have passed, they gather up their bundles of memory and fall in behind, treading in our footsteps and catching up little by little. 
It's ominous that the image he so clearly remembers in connection with Susan is the exact moment when Aunt Cordelia starts to piece it together. The same moment that he immortalizes is the exact beginning of their downfall. Chapter 3, Castles. We have about 200 pages to go, and King really starts to get the ball rolling. Cordelia goes to Eldred Jonas and lets him know about her concern of Susan having been with Roland. Jonas then realizes that the boys have been at the Sitco oil patch and know a lot more than they've been leading on. Chapter 4, Roland and Cuthbert. So, the game of real-life castles continues as Jonas waits for the boys to leave their place and trashes it while they're gone. Elsewhere, Elaine has a sensation that something is wrong and begs Roland for them to return. Roland's reply is that he had suspected that Jonas would do something, and furthermore acknowledges that he knows that both Elaine and Cuthbert have suspected that Roland has not been focused due to his love of Susan. Roland is demonstrating that he's more in control than we might have thought. When they return to Bar K, Cuthbert has had enough. He nearly clocks Roland and blames him for what has happened. Meanwhile, Roy DePappy relates to Jonas his encounter with an emissary of John Farson, the one and the only Walter O'Dim himself, Mr. Randall Flagg. We should know who it is right away based on the description that he looks like other people. And when the question is raised if it's John Farson himself, DePappy says no. King takes the time to explain that Farson is a large man, which Walter is not, so I believe that though that through his characters, King is telling his audience that Walter only manipulates Farson, but is not Farson. Something I'm not quite sure is the case. I mean, when you look at Farson's action, it reeks of Randall Flagg from both the stand and eyes of the dragon. Now, in the pages of the Dark Tower, the final book, through the perspective of Flagg, there is a moment where he says something about having worked for Farson, so that leads us to believe that he is not John Farson. Um, but I, I, this, to me, this this is so so similar to the things that he has done before in the past, you know. And in the introduction to Wolves of the Kala, King states that the ageless stranger has been known as Martin Broadcloak, Randall Flagg, Richard Fannin and John Farson. So, I mean, King is telling us he might renege on that, but I just feel like he kept up, kept on changing his mind. So, whether or not Flag finally says that he had worked for Farson, maybe he's just convinced himself, or maybe Flag is just another victim of the world moving on. In the case here, with Roland's own memories shifting and sliding and changing as the past changes maybe flag is uh, you know just going through the same condition that we you know everyone is at that point so maybe at the different times in this series he is farson he's not farson he is farson he's not farson that would make sense jonas goes to see this man and king man he gives us another great description of our favorite rogue devilish wizard on page 406 Jonas whirled on his heels suddenly feeling old and slow standing there was a man of medium height powerfully built from the look of him with bright blue eyes and the rosy cheeks of either good health or good wine 
His parted, smiling lips revealed cunning little teeth, which must have been filed to points. Surely such points couldn't be natural. He wore a black robe, like the robe of a holy man, with the hood pushed back. Jonas's first thought, that the fellow was bald, had been wrong, he saw. The hair was simply cropped so stringently that it was nothing but fuzz. Put the bean shooter away, the man in black said. We're friends here, I tell you, absolutely palsy-walsy. We'll break bread and speak of many things, oxen and oil tankers, and whether or not Frank Sinatra really was better than Derbingle. Who? A better what? No one you know, nothing that matters, the man in black tittered again. It was, Jonas thought, the sort of sound one might expect to hear drifting through the barred windows of a lunatic asylum. He turned, looked into the mirror again. This time he saw the man in black standing there and smiling at him big as life. Gods, had he been there all along? Yes, but you couldn't see him until he was ready to be seen. I don't know if he's a wizard, but he's a glamour man, all right. Mayhap even Farson's sorcerer. And he continues, laying it on, uh, just giving description after description of just how creepy and unsettling and dangerously charismatic this magical lunatic really is. Cuthbert returns to Bar K with the note that Rhea had given Shimi to give to Cordelia Delgado. Thankfully, Shimi had run into Bert, and the note confirms Cuthbert's worst suspicions. He returns and cold cocks Roland, and the two have their moment. And it's great moment where it all comes out on the table and Roland acknowledges how much of a fool he's been. Now that they've cleared the air, Roland and Cuthbert are a team again, and they head out the next day to confront the witch. King writes, It was a morning neither of them ever forgot. For the first time in their lives, they went forth wearing holstered revolvers. For the first time in their lives, they went into the world as gunslingers. The confrontation with Rhea is quick, but important to the events still to come. Roland threatens Rhea, who has grown dim. As he and Cuthbert leaves, Roland spots the snake that Rhea had sent to startle the horse. Roland's too sharp for this, however, and shoots the snake, an act which displays Roland's ability, but also gives Rhea motivation to get revenge on Roland. Chapter 5, Wizard's Rainbow Susan and the boys finally meet together, and there's a very quick and interesting moment between she and Cuthbert that I'll get into during the bonus section. But for right now, I'll just say that this section sets up the ending of the novel. Every character is arranging their final move, and Roland specifically tells us his. They will explode the tankers, trap the men in the eyebolt canyon with the thinny, and ultimately, the three of them will kill 200 men. As they refine their plan, Elaine is wise to point out the wild card, Rhea, and during the conversation they come to realize that she's in the possession of the wizard's rainbow. It's a great moment, wonderfully captured by King as the boys react to the realization, leaving Susan and us in the dark, allowing for an expository flashback to clarify for us. Now what a flashback, guys. The novel has focused entirely on a rebellion and a love a young love set within a small scenic town. With the exception of a witch, it's been more of a suspense and love story. Here, in a, tour, in, a, in a story told by Stephen, King links our narrative back to the larger, weirder world of the Dark Tower, which includes magic 
as seen on page 437. Wizard's Rainbow is just a fairy tale, Cuthbert said, smiling in response to Stephen's smile. Then, perhaps, it was something in Stephen Deschain's eyes. Cuthbert's smile faltered. Isn't it? Not all the stories are true, but I think that of Merlin's Rainbow is, Stephen replied. It said that once there were 13 glass balls in it, one for each of the 12 guardians and one representing the nexus point of the beams. One for the tower, Roland said in a low voice, feeling goose flesh. One for the tower. Aye, 13 it was called when I was a boy. We'd tell stories about the black ball around the fire sometimes and scare ourselves silly, unless our fathers caught us at it. My own dad said it wasn't wise to talk about 13, for it might hear its name called and roll your way. But black 13 doesn't matter to you three. Not now, at least. No, it's the pink one. Merlin's grapefruit. It's impossible to tell how serious he was, or if he was serious at all. If the other balls in the wizard's rainbow did exist, most are broken now. Such things never stay in one place or one pair of hands for long, you know. And even enchanted glass has a way of breaking. Yet at least three or four bends of the rainbow may still be rolling around this sad world of ours. The blue, almost certainly. A desert tribe of slow mutants, the total hogs they call themselves, had that one less than fifty years ago, though it slipped from sight again since. The green and the orange are reputed to be in Lud and Dees, respectively. And just maybe, the pink one. What exactly do they do, Roland asked. What are they good for? For seeing. Some colors of the wizard's rainbow are reputed to look into the future. Others look into other worlds. Those where the demons live. Those where the old people are supposed to have gone when they left our world. These may also show the location of the secret doors which pass between worlds. Other colors, they say, can look far into our own world and see things people would soon as keep secret. They never see the good, only the ill. How much of this is true and how much is myth, no one knows for sure. He looked at them, his smile fading. But we, this we do know. John Farson is said to have a talisman, something that glows in his tent late at night, sometimes before battles sometimes before large movements of troops and horse, sometimes before momentous decisions are announced. And it glows pink. And there's, going back to that one particular section about Black 13, I'll just read it again, so bear with me. I, 13, it was called when I was a boy. We'd tell stories about the black ball around the fire sometimes and scare ourselves silly unless our fathers caught us at it. My own dad said it wasn't wise to talk about 13, for it might hear its name called and roll your way. But black 13 doesn't matter to you three. Not now, at least. I don't know if he knew at the time, because he was just under 10 years uh, away from writing Wolves of the Kala, but Black 13 might not matter to Roland now. Black 13 certainly will matter to Roland later in the Dark Tower series. Stephen then explains um, why Merlin's grapefruit is in Hambry, that the addictive qualities would otherwise consume Farson if he stayed with it at all times. And more importantly to our characters, we get the moment in which the boys ride off to Mahis, 
and pass by Roland's mother's window. It's heartbreaking, her crying, waving, and Roland not waving back. From a thematic standpoint, it links the two most important in his sorry, the two most important women in his life together, and also foreshadows the bloody end of Gabriel Deschain. If his mother at the window is designed to invoke Susan at the window, and we know what happens to Susan, then well, King is hinting at Roland's mother's ultimate fate. However, the picture by Dave McKean has always bothered me. Uh, and if you find the picture in the original publication, I mean, I, I'm, I don't like saying that a picture is good or bad, but I judge a picture, especially in the Dark Tower, whether or not it captures the moment that King is able to capture in words. And I'll get into this in my review of Book 7, The Dark Tower. I'm going to talk about the illustrators that have graced our imaginations in this particular series and how they will take one moment and they will be the ones that make it legendary, not Stephen King, right? So there's opportunity here. And it's why I love the internet because you can find so much fan art there. Um, and you can see additional art by Michael Whelan, who is the bookend artist in The Gunslinger and The Dark Tower, who has done additional work not included in the, the publications, which is just awesome. I'm glad that he does that. The picture on page 400, between 400 and 401 of the um, original uh, publication shows the three boys looking up at a giant... Uh, Gabrielle Deschain. Now, she looks like a giant, and I don't, I don't, I don't care that she looks like a giant because this is Dave McKean's style. He's really good at what he does. I don't mind his art. I like his art. I love he and Grant Morrison's graphic novel, <clears throat> Arkham Asylum. It's fantastic. It's fantastic, and it wouldn't work as well as it does if Dave McKean wasn't there to illustrate the madness that Grant Morrison is writing. It's perfect. Perfect blend of two collaborators. So I have nothing against Dave McKean. However, this particular picture that is not a woman hanging out the window, that is Willie Nelson hanging out of the window. Willie Nelson, the country singer, look at the picture, tell me that's not Willie Nelson, because it clearly is. So the moment that is supposed to be one of those iconic moments in the series, one of those images that just lasts with Roland for the rest of his life, the moment of his mother waving to him out the window, just looking for forgiveness, knowing that she, he's never going to see her again, he's never going to interact with her again, she's going to wave at him goodbye, and he doesn't, he's so mad, or he won't look behind. It should be one of the most important pictures ever captured from the Dark Terror series, and it's Willie Nelson hanging out of the window. It's always bothered me, guys. It's always bothered me, and I need to share it with you, and I need some validation here. I need you to agree with me. Chapter 6, Closing the Year. I know that I've been reading a lot of excerpts uh, from the book, but I think that that's why this installment is my favorite. You know, I, King's handling of the seasons, like I've already talked about, continues here with the ominous and vivid introduction to this chapter. So I'm going to read a pretty lengthy uh, section here. Um, between pages 455 and 400 and, sorry, 445 and 447. 
So chapter 6, closing the year. So now comes to Mejis fin de año, known in toward the center of Midworld as closing the year. It comes as it has a thousand times before, or ten thousand, or a hundred thousand. No one can tell for sure. The world has moved on, and time has grown strange. In Mejis, their saying is, time is a face on the water. In the fields, the last of the potatoes are being picked by men and women who wear gloves and their heaviest seraps. Did I just really butcher that? Seraps? I took Spanish for like over five years, guys. I'm sorry. I'm going to butcher a lot of these words, but I'm being honest. For now, the wind has turned firmly, blowing east to west, blowing hard, and, there, and always there's the smell of salt in the chilly air, a smell like tears. Los Campesinos harvest uh, the final rows cheerfully enough, talking of the things they'll do when the capers they'll cut at reaping fair, but they'll feel all of autumn's old sadness in the wind, the going of the year. It runs away from them like water in a stream, and although none speak of it, all know it very well. In the orchards, the last and highest of the apples are picked by laughing young men, in these not-quite gales, the final days of picking belong only to them, who bob up and down like crow's nest lookouts. Above them, in skies which hold a brilliant cloudless blue, squadrons of geese fly south, calling their rusty adieu. The small fishing boats are pulled from the water, their hulls are scraped and painted by singing owners who mostly work stripped to the waist in spite of the chill in the air. They sing the old songs as they work. I am a man of the bright blue sea, all I see, all I see. I am a man of the barony, all I see is mino. I am a man, a man of the bright blue bay, all I say, all I say, until my nets are full I stay, all I say is fino. And sometimes a little cask of graph is tossed from dock to dock. On the bay itself only the large boats now remain, pacing about the big circles which mark their dropped nets as a working dog may pace around a flock of sheep. At noon the bay is a rippling sheet of autumn fire, and the men on the boats sit cross-legged, eating their lunches, and know that all they see is theirs, oh, at least until the gray gales of autumn come swarming over the horizon, coughing out their gusts of sleet and snow. Closing, closing the year. Along the streets of Hambry, the reap lights now burn at night, and the hands of the stuffy guys are painted red. Reap charms hang everywhere, and although women often kiss and are kissed in the streets and in both marketplaces, often by men they do not know, sexual intercourse has come to an almost complete halt. It will resume with a bang, you might say, on reap night. There will be the usual crop of full earth babies following the year as a result. On the drop, the horses gallop wildly, as if understanding very likely they do that their time of freedom is coming to an end. They swoop and then stand with their faces pointing west when the wind gusts, showing their asses to winter. On the ranches, porch nets are taken down and shutters rehung. In the huge ranch kitchens and smaller farmhouse kitchens, no one is stealing reap kisses and no one is even thinking about sex. This is the time of putting up and laying by, and the kitchens fume with steam and pulse with heat from before dawn until long after dark. There is the smell of apples and beets and beans and sharp root and curing strips of meat. 
Women work ceaselessly all day and then sleepwalk to bed where they lie like corpses until the next dark morning calls them back to their kitchens. Leaves are burned in town yards, and as the week goes on, an old demon's face shows ever more clearly. Red-handed stuffy guys are thrown the pyres more and more frequently. In the fields, corn shocks flare like torches, and often stuffies burn with them, their red hands and white cross eyes rippling in the heat. Men stand about these fires, not speaking, their faces solemn. No one will say what terrible old ways and unspeakable old gods are being appropriated by the burning of the stuffy guys, but they all know well enough from time to time, one of these men will whisper two words under his breath. Charyu tree. They are closing, closing, closing the year. The streets rattle with firecrackers and sometimes with heftier big bang that makes even placid cart holders rear in their traces and echo with the laughter of children. On the porch of the mercantile and across the street at the traveler's rest, kisses sometimes humanly open and with much sweet lashing of tongues are exchanged, but coral thorns whores, cotton gillies is what the airy fairy ones like Gert Moggins like to call themselves, are bored. They will have little custom this week. This is not year's end, when the winter logs will burn and may haste will be barn dances from one end to the other, and yet it is. This is the real year's end, charyu tree. And everyone, from Stanley Ruiz standing at the bar beneath the romp to the farthest of Frank Langell's vaqueros out on the edge of the bad grass, knows it. There's a kind of echo in the bright air, a yearning for other places in the blood, a loneliness in the heart that sings like the wind. But this year there's something else as well, a sense of wrongness that no one can quite voice. Folks who never had a nightmare in their lives will awake screaming with them during the week of fin de año. Men who consider themselves peaceful will find themselves not only in fistfights but instigating them. Con discontented young boys who would only have dreamed of running away in other years will this year actually do it and most will not come back after the first night spent sleeping raw. There is a sense, inarticulate but very much there that things have gone amiss this season. It is the closing of the year, and it is also the closing of peace. For it is here, in the sleepy outworld barony of Mayhese, that Midworld's last great conflict will shortly begin. It is from here that the blood will begin to flow. In two years, no more, the world that it has been will be swept away. It starts here. From its field of roses, the dark tower cries out in its beast's voice. Time is a face on the water. Ka sweeps through the town in the dark autumnal winds. The celebration of death sets the groundwork for Susan's death and symbolically the final death of love and light of the civilized world. Town boys kill a dog for fun. Cordelia dresses up a scarecrow as her aunt and sets it to flame. I'm sorry, dresses up a scarecrow as her niece and sets it aflame. Roland and Susan make love for the final time, and the demon moon hangs above the town, large and bloody, winking one evil eye on the citizens below. Chapter 7, Taking the Ball. 
The Big Coffin Hunters murder Kimba Reimer and Mayor Thorne in order to tie up loose ends and frame the boys in the process. A posse rides out to Bar K to round up the boys, which they manage to do, which is good. It reminds the reader that despite their abilities and cleverness, they're still human and are able to be caught unaware. On their way back to town, Jonas waits to get his digs in. He and Roland trade barbs, Jonas making fun of Roland for his youth, Roland making fun of Jonas for being too old. Then intuition flares within Roland, who suddenly understands that the leader of the Big Coffin Hunters was a failed gunslinger. Jonas then meets up with Rhea and agrees to take her with the grapefruit to Farson. Chapter 8. The Ashes Cordelia, the most horrendous character in this novel, confronts Susan and curses her niece, a curse which will ultimately come true. Susan then manages to break the boys out of jail, but not before she has to kill both Deputy Dave and Sheriff Avery. Chapter 9. Reaping now, I haven't really talked about the reaping yet. Everything has been building up to this ritual, and it's awesome. It's like an otherworldly Halloween tradition. It's an incredible backdrop to the horrors that are about to unfold. There's an incredible sequence in which the quartet causes the oil derricks to blow, and I'm breezing through it because I've already read um, some pretty hefty chunks here, and some things just kind of need to be read for themselves. Susan and Roland unknowingly then have their final goodbye as the Boyds ride off to blow up the tankers. And the tension over the last hundred pages is nearly unbearable. Just when one side thinks they've got it all figured out, the other side undoes their plans. And just because we're rooting for Roland doesn't mean that King isn't going to twist the knife while he's got stuck in us. For instance, just as the boys are about to ambush Jonas's party, King switches the perspective to Jonas, who is told by Rhea that Susan is hiding nearby in a hut, and Jonas heads off to get her. Jonas, now more under the sway of the grapefruit, takes it from Rhea, who rides off under the demon moon, cursing the big coffin hunters. Rhea arrives at Cordelia's house and hypnotizes her into wanting to murder Susan before lapsing into vampirism, drinking her blood to regain her energy. After the boys silently cut down a good number of Jonas' riding party, they are forced to their full-on attack, which happens on page 555. They spurred towards the main party riding into battle for the first time, closing like wolves on sheep, shooting before the men ahead of them had any slight idea of who had gotten in behind them or what was happening. The three boys had been trained as gunslingers, and what they lacked in experience they made up for with the keen eyes and reflexes of the young. Under their guns, the desert east of Hanging Rock became a killing floor. Screaming, not a single thought among them above the wrists of their deadly hands, they sliced into the unprepared Mayhees party like a three-sided blade, shooting as they went. Not every shot killed, but not a one went entirely wild either. Men flew out of their saddles and were dragged by boots caught in stirrups as their horses bolted. Other men, some dead, some only wounded, were trampled beneath the feet of their panicky rearing mounts. Roland rode with both guns drawn and firing, Rusher's reins gripped between his teeth so, they wouldn't, so he wouldn't fall overside and trip the horse up. Two men dropped beneath his fire on his left, two more on the right. Ahead of them, Ryan Hookie turned in his saddle, his beard stubbly face long with amazement. 
Around his neck, a reap charm in the shape of a bell swung and tinkled as he grabbed for the shotgun which hung in a scabbard over one burly blacksmith's shoulder. Before he could do more than get a hand on the gunstock, Rulin blew the silver bell off his chest and exploded the heart which lay beneath it. Hooky pitched out his saddle with a grunt. Cuthbert caught with Roland on the right side and shot two more men off their horses. He gave Roland a fierce and blazing grin. Al was right, he shouted. These are hard calibers. Roland's talented fingers did their work, rolling the cylinders of the guns he held and reloading at a full gallop, doing it with a ghastly supernatural speed, and then beginning to fire again. Now they had come almost all the way through the group riding hard, laying men low on both sides and straight ahead as well. Elaine dropped back a little and turned his horse, covering Roland and Cuthbert from behind. Roland saw the Jonas, Depapi, and Lengel reining around to face their attackers. Lengel was clawing as machine gun, but the strap had gotten tangled in the wide collar of the duster he wore, and every time he grabbed for the stock, it bobbed out of his reach. Beneath his heavy gray-blonde mustache, Lengel's mouth was twisted with fury. Now, riding between Roland and Cuthbert, these three, holding a huge, blue-steeled five-shot in one hand, came Hirsch Renfew. "'God's damn you!' Renfew cried. "'Oh, you rotten!' He dropped his reins and laid the five-shot in the crook of one elbow to steady it. The wind gusted viciously, wrapping him in an envelope of swirling brown grit. Roland had no thought of retreating or perhaps jigging to one side or the other. He had, in fact, no thoughts at all. The fever had descended over his mind and he burned with it like a torch inside of a glass sleeve. Screaming through the reins, caught in his teeth, he galloped towards Harsh Renfew and the three men behind him. And it just goes on, you know, and it goes on. Um, so good. And Jonas, seeing Roland understands how better Roland is than he and threatens to smash the grapefruit. Roland completely ignores him, shoots his hand off, catches the pouch before it falls, and boom, boom, fires two rounds into Jonas's face. And then Roland continues to seal his fate by reaching into the bag and pulling out the grapefruit. Chapter 10, Beneath the Demon Moon. Rhea barges into the Traveler's Rest. And King makes sure that we get the perspective of Sheb, who will one day, many years later, be in a similar saloon when another magical figure barges in and casts a spell that will prove their undoing. Rhea whips them up into a frenzy, the image of the Charyu tree burning in their minds. And then we get the scene of Roland with the grapefruit. Much as Walter's vision does in the first book, Roland flies above the land towards the Dark Tower, which takes him through a dark and blasted land known as the Thunderclap. I'm going to talk more about the Thunderclap in this bonus section, but for now we'll just say that with this, King plants some seeds for future installments. And the Thunderclap, guys, seriously, I mean, come on, such an awesome name. And he hears the voice of our favorite guardian who first appeared in It, the Turtle, who will later be named Maturin. But more importantly, this is where it happens. This is where Roland first sees his beloved tower for the first time. And this is something that I'll get into in a lot more detail in the bonus episode. But for now, let's just say that Roland makes a choice. He wishes Susan a good life, but he chooses the tower. And with this decision, his first great sacrifice is made. It's no surprise that Susan 
having been freed by Olive Thornton, is then recaptured by Clay Reynolds and Rhea herself. The novel had begun with Susan and Rhea, and it will end with Susan and Rhea. Roland and the gunslingers dispatch Latigo and the rest of Farson's men. Their plan unfolds as they expected to. They're able to lead men into Box Canyon, and they let the Thinny take care of the rest. And then, when Roland looks upon the face of the moon, he realizes that he's misjudged the situation and realizes just how much danger Susan is in. And then it's time for Susan's end, which is just brutal and tragic. Which we get um, between page 607, I'm going to read, to 608. Bird and bear and hare and fish, she murmured, as she was first lowered and then slammed against the pyramid of dry wood, put in the place which had been left for her, the whole crowd chanting in unison now, Chariu tree! Chariu tree! Chariu tree! Bird and bear and hare and fish. Trying to remember how he had danced with her that night, trying to remember how he had loved her in the willow grove trying to remember that first meeting on the dark road. Thank you, Sai. We're well met, he had said. And yes, in spite of everything, in spite of this miserable ending with the folk who had been her neighbors turned into prancing goblins by moonlight, in spite of the pain and betrayal and what was coming, he had spoken the truth. They had been well met. They had been very well met indeed. Chariu tree! Chariu tree! Chariu tree. Women came and piled dry corn shucks around her feet. Several of them slapped her. It didn't matter. Her bruised and puffy face seemed to have gone numb. And one, it was Misha Alvarez, whose daughter Susan had taught to ride, spat in her eyes and then leaped prankishly away, shaking her hands at the sky and laughing. For a moment, she saw Coral Thorin festooned with reap charms, her arms filled with dead leaves which she, she threw at Susan. They fluttered down around her in a cackling, er, sorry, crackling aromatic shower. And then came her aunt again and Rhea beside her. Each held a torch. They stood before her and Susan could smell sizzling pitch. Rhea raised her torch to the moon. Chariu tree, she screamed in her rusty old voice and the, and the crowd responded, Chariu tree. Cordelia raised her own torch. Come reap! Come reap! They cried back to her. Now, ye bitch, Rhea crooned, now comes warmer kisses than any your love ever gave ye. Die, ye faithless, Cordelia whispered. Life for the crops, death for you. It was she who first flung her torch into the corn shucks, which were piled as high as Susan's knees. Rhea flung hers a bare second later. The corn shucks blazed up at once, dazzling Susan with yellow light. She drew in one final breath of cool air, warmed it with her heart, and then loosed it in a defiant shout. Roland, I love thee! The crowd fell back, murmuring as if uneasy at what they had done. Now that it was too late to take it back, there was not a stuffy guy, but a cheerful girl they all knew, one of their own, for some mad reason backed up against the reap night bonfire with her hands painted red. They might have saved her, given another moment. Some might have anyway, but it was too late. The dry wood caught, her pants caught, her shirt caught, 
Her long blonde hair blazed on her head like a crown. Roland, I love thee. At the end of her life, she was aware of heat but not pain. She had time to consider his eyes. Eyes of that blue which is the color of the sky at first light and morning. She had time to think of him on the drop, riding Rusher flat out with his black hair flying from his temples and his neckerchief rippling, to see him laughing with an ease and freedom he would never find again in the long life which stretched out before him beyond hers. And it was his laughter she took with her as she went out, fleeing the light and heat into the silky, consoling dark, calling to him over and over as she went, calling bird and bear and hare and fish. And Roland is forced to watch through the grapefruit. And if Roland ever had a chance in this good life, of a good life, it's gone now burned up along with Susan, which is addressed when Elaine thinks the thing which rode west with them towards Gilead was not Roland, or even a ghost of Roland. Like the moon at the close of its cycle, Roland was gone. I would say that having taken his place is the gunslinger. Part 4, All God's Chillin' Got Shoes. Chapter 1, Kansas in the Morning. Roland's present-day quartet absorbs the story now that he's finished it. He begins to tie up the loose threads, but stops before he can totally finish. Here he focuses the group and reminds them of the large glass object in the road that they have to address. It's King's way of teasing out the true ending of the story. As Roland answers some questions about his story as they head towards the Emerald City, they discover six pairs of shoes in the road, which fulfills the image that Roland had while in the grapefruit. Chapter 2, Shoes in the Road. If the audience wasn't sure what was happening, they can piece it together now. We've already had a witch who at one point even said, I'll get you, my pretty. We have our shoes, and now we have an Emerald City. And King explains it by stating that worlds were melting into one another as the forces of the tower weakened, which will definitely be explored in the next book, Wolves of the Kala. And the final segment of this book is a very earnest love letter to Frank Baum's The Wizard of Oz. It's clear that it's a story that has inspired King. Elements have been used throughout his entire run, and it's nice that he gets to overtly acknowledge its importance. As they approach the Green Palace, they see that the towers are topped with red pennants adorned with the Crimson King's sigil. Now, though we've just sat through almost 700 pages of tension that ended with the burning alive of a beautiful 16-year-old girl, King is still able to have fun. Whether when it's Roland says, very seriously, it seems to me, from your telling of the tale, speaking of Wizard of Oz, that Dorothy's friends have had the things they wanted all along, to when Eddie and Susanna and Jake recite lines from the movie. The palace itself is incredibly detailed, and though it's taken from the Emerald City, it's designed with many different colors with a gate whose bars are all derived from the wizard's rainbow. It takes the quartet to put on their shoes and click their heels to open it. Now, first time I read it, my heart was beating out of its chest as they entered the Emerald City in search of the wizard. The wizard, who would it be? I mean, the Crimson King is what I expected, right? And secretly wished for Randall Flagg. 
because, I mean, he had been in the previous book. I mean, we knew that he was Martin and Walter and their wizards, so wizard and glass, right? So King seemed to hear my thoughts and wrote this scene specifically for me, giving us the showdown between his most popular villain and his most enduring hero. But first, King teases the reader. Who is the voice behind the Wizard of Oz? First, he makes us think that it's Blaine, alive after all. Then he makes us think that it's Brown, the man that Roland shot in the desert. Then he makes us think that it's Jonas. But then he reveals that it's the TikTok man, which means that his master can't be too far behind. And then he appears. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain, said a voice from behind them, and then tittered. My friend Andrew is having another in a long series of bad days. Poor boy. I suppose I was wrong to bring him out of Ludd, but he just looks so... lost. The owner of the voice tittered again. Jake swung around and saw that there was now a man sitting in the middle of the great throne, with his legs casually crossed in front of him. He was wearing jeans, a dark jacket that belted at the waist, and old run-down cowboy boots. On his jacket was a button that showed a pig's head with a bullet hole between the eyes. In his lap, this newcomer held a drawstring bag. He rose, standing in the seat of the throne like a child in daddy's chair, and the smile dropped away from his face like loose skin. Now his eyes blazed, and his lips parted over vast, hungry teeth. He orders the TikTok man to kill everyone, <laughs> but TikTok is immediately dispatched. You know, I mean, it's hilarious how, how much of a threat he never was. And then King getting rid of the TikTok man, you know, he knows the magic in this scene, and he just keeps upping the cool factor. Thus fell Lord Perth, and the earth did shake with that thunder, said the man on the throne. Except he's not a man, Jake thought, not a man at all. We found the wizard at last, I think, and I'm pretty sure I know what's in that bag he has. Martin, Roland said. He held out his left hand, the one which was still whole. Martin Broadcloak, after all these years... After all these centuries. Want this, Roland? Eddie put the gun he had used to kill the TikTok man in Roland's hand. A tendril of blue smoke was still rising from the barrel. Roland looked at the old revolver as if he had never seen it before, then slowly lifted it and pointed it at the grinning, rosy-cheeked figure sitting cross-legged on the green palace throne. Finally, Roland breathed thumbing back the trigger, finally in my sight. So, those hoping for an epic showdown, guys, you're not going to get it. Instead, you get the confirmation that Flag is Martin and Merlin after all. But, I guess he, uh, he's not? So again, again, um... I'm like 90 episodes in, and how much time have I spent talking about Flag's identity? Because we are going to learn um, in Win Through the Keyhole, uh, we're, I mean, we're going to meet Merlin, 
Um, and I don't believe that that Merlin is this particular wizard. Um, anyway. Uh, but look, regardless, he's not here to kill the Cotet. Now, I've said in previous reviews, and I'm going to talk about it more in the bonus episode, but I really don't think that Flag can kill any of them. I don't think that he can make a direct move on Roland. He can only tempt or manipulate, which is what he does here. He tells them to cast off. They say no. That's it. And that, all that's left is to finish up the story. Chapter 4, The Glass. We get the truth of what happened to Roland's mother, how Rhea had glamoured Roland into killing her, thinking that it was Rhea herself. Chapter 5, The Path of the Beam. Now that the story has been told, Roland breaks down and is picked up by his friends. Roland admits that before they had come along, he believed he was dead, and acknowledges that they are his salvation. Roland says that the blood-stained belt that his mother had given him was lost, and that he'll tell this story another day, which he never does. At least, not yet anyway. Not to us. Not yet, and it's 2015. Maybe someday, you know, the, uh, I just finished rereading the Dark Tower book, Seven of the Dark Tower, and there are many stories that are told in Roland's life, um, but I guess that there's still some left to tell. Alright guys, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the characters, uh, the first of which being Rhea. Uh, and I just want to read one particular very, very quick description. The old woman's horrible smile widened into something that made Susan think of the way eels sometimes seem to grin, after death and just before the pot. Now this is really too bad that we don't see Rhea again because this is an awesome character. I mean, she's great. So. Roland hints that he sees her again. Well, it's not a hint. Um, it's a tease that we're going to get a story that we never do. Um, because he very bloodthirstily says, oh yes, I saw her again. So I want to know that story. I want that to be a great story. You know, what happens there? Um, but Ray is great, guys. I mean, all of the scenes with her on her, in her little hut are just something straight out of a Grimm's fairy tale or something that you would see on television in the weeks leading up to October 31st. It's very cartoon imagery and I love it. I just love that we have all of these different elements going on here. We have the post-apocalyptic aspects with uh, the, the run-down sitco. We have the, the, the western romance. You know, it's a beautiful vista, but we also have this Halloween reaping season, and, you know, what's Halloween without our witch? And, of course, in the Venn diagram, I'd say between Halloween and the Wizard of Oz, smack dab in the middle of that Venn diagram is the Wicked Witch of the Witch. Wow, I butchered that one. Wicked Witch of the West. So that's what she is and it's just like I said earlier I, I, I kind of gave most of my thoughts on Rhea already but I just like the idea that you can interpret her inclusion here as worlds just blending together or she's the origin from which all other witches then spring from now I want to talk about Susan guys uh, after all these years after all these centuries we finally meet Susan Delgado 
and as I've stated earlier, King has to make her feel believable. We've already gotten to know Roland, and we have seen him in his youth. We've seen him warm to his new family, and we've seen him mourn his lost love. But it's another thing to convey that love. The question is, was King able to pull it off? The answer is yes, and he does so because we believe in Susan Delgado. It's a tricky character to pull off because she has to be innocent and young, but at the same time she can't be too foolish as teenagers tend to be, so foolish that you don't like her. Basically, King needed to create a realistic character but not one too realistic. She's a balance of kindness but is also firm as evidenced from her singing through the moonlight to Rhea's hut and her resiliency to refrain from crying even when Rhea mocks her father for having been killed by his horses. In this scene, even though she's just a 16-year-old girl, an orphan really, in the house of a bona fide witch, she takes control of the situation, restarting the conversation after and attempting to be a diplomat. She's one half of a doomed love story, love in the time of war. The fact that Roland and Susan fall for each other against the backdrop of the rebellion of the good man John Farson is what makes the love story that much more charged. It's an old trick, but it's a good one. It's Roland and Susan against the world, really. Unfortunately, Roland's first love coincides with his beginning steps upon the path of the Dark Tower, so there was only one way this was ever going to work out. Jonas! Let's talk about that guy. Now, I don't know who King envisioned in the role of Jonas. Possibly Lee Marvin. I don't know about you. But every time I read this, I picture Sam Elliott. The only thing that doesn't work with that is King's description of his reedy, warbly voice, which is certainly not the voice of Sam Elliott. Though in my mind, I just replaced King's description of that reedy, warbly voice with Elliott's iconic syrupy drawl. Now, Eldred Jonas isn't a major player in this book, but he is an important one. He represents what Roland could have been had he lost his trial against court. He's a dark mirror of an alternate future and also shows the customs of this world. This is what happens when you fail the test. Furthermore, he's the anti-court whose test that Roland will have to pass now that he's an actual gunslinger. I wish we had gotten more adventures from Jonas and the Big Coffin Hunters. If Jonas is the anti-court, he's also the anti-Roland. Roland falls in love with Susan. Jonas begins a relationship with Susan's Aunt Cordelia. More so, the two companions form together um, a mirror to Roland as two companions, Elaine and Cuthbert. But with Jonas, I want to know what happened to him after he was sent west, how he fell in with the Manny, or the Mani, sorry, what his adventures were like when he traveled through the doorways into other worlds than these. Now, Farson. This novel is the one that reveals the most about this character who played such a major part in the life of Roland. On one hand, it makes perfect sense that we never see Farson. Why should we? Roland is just a soldier, and soldiers don't face off against the other side's generals. But on the other hand, it's hard not to have wanted to see more 
I mean, we talk about Latigo. We meet Latigo. I want to know more about this guy. Later on in the pages of Wolves of the Kala, we learn of another general of uh, Farsons, um, Grissom, and Grissom's blue-faced army. So I want to know about the just the different baronies and the the, the different um, geographies of where Farson is pulling these men from the very um, Swedish and Norwegian sort of uh, you know Latigo that that's where Latigo is from um, so I just there's so much that is unsaid about Farson there's so much story that is just never told and that story those are stories that i would like to see okay guys what i'm going to do now i'm going to talk about the stephen kingisms the king the uh tricks and traits and tropes um that you'll find from one stephen king novel uh and the next and the first of which is the dream sequence now it wouldn't be a stephen king book if we didn't get a dream sequence and we do when eddie dreams of the rose Number two is addiction. It's something that has populated many of Stephen King's works as far back as Salem's Lot with Father Callahan. We've seen it explored with Jack Torrance, Jim Gardner, Andy McGee, Eddie Dean, Johnny Marinville, and with Roland himself, as he is, as Eddie calls him, a tower junkie. In Wizard and Glass, the drug is the grapefruit, the magic object to which Rhea is clearly addicted. Now what's creepy about this is that as I watched Rhea grow addicted to this crystal ball, I kept picturing instead of the grapefruit, an iPhone. It's frightening how close these two objects are and the dependency the user has on it. Faces lit by a glowing surface, the ability to spy on everyone, and he specifically points out that young love is a drug, also going back to the, the, the idea of addiction. And it's just as dangerous as any drug. And Roland and Susan are deeply addicted to it. Uh, number three is the number 19. There are, count them up, 19 working oil derricks in Mayhees. The number 19 will start to play a major part, an annoyingly major part, I might add, um, in the series, beginning with uh, the next book, uh, Wolves of the Column. Number four is the mentally challenged boy with supernatural abilities striking up a friendship with the group comedian who has saved him from bullies. Cuthbert saving Shimi is very similar to Beaver saving Duddits in the pages of Dreamcatcher. Number five is the mentally challenged character. First, it was Tom Collin from The Stand. We also had, in a similar way, Wolf from The Talisman. Later we'll have the I can't believe they let King name him this Duddits, and here we have Shimi, who is basically Ben Stiller's simple Jack character from Tropic Thunder. He's so cartoonish, I kept expecting Acme inscribed Anvil to drop from the sky. During the saloon, he apologized to the Pappy and literally says, I went trippy trip. And when he agrees to keep quiet about something, he says, Like when I brought you the flowers, hushaboo! Number six is J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, so basically, I mean, the, the grapefruit is King's version of the ring. And number seven is the magician whipping up the crowd for sacrifice. So Susan end is very similar to uh, Larry and Ralph's end in the pages of The Stand. Spoilers! Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, Easter eggs. Uh, so here are the shout-outs. Um, and connections to Stephen King's other works, beginning with The Stand. 
I mean, duh. I mean, not only does King place our characters in the world of Captain Trips, but he even comments on, on it um, through our characters on page uh, 624. Um, so he's looking at the... What are they looking at? They're looking at a note that had been left under a wiper blade. He looked at it, shook his head. I can't make out... I can only make out a few words. Old woman, dark man. What does the rest say? Read it to me. Jake took it back. The old woman from the dreams is in Nebraska. Her name is Abigail. He paused. Then down here it says, The dark man is in the west. Maybe Vegas. Jake looked up at the gunslinger, the note fluttering in his hand, his face puzzled and uneasy. But Roland was looking towards the palace which shimmered across the highway, the palace that was not in the west but in the east, a palace that was light, not dark. In the west, Roland said. Dark man, dark tower, and always in the west. Nebraska's west of here, too, Susanna said hesitantly. I don't know if that matters, this Abigail person, but I think she's a part of another story, Roland said. But a story close to this one, Eddie put in. Next door, maybe. Close enough to swap sugar for salt. Or start arguments. I'm sure you're right, Roland said. And we may have business with the old woman and the dark man yet. But today, our business is east. Come on. They began walking. I mean, that's, that's just great fan service right there. Number two, Thinnies. This is the first time that King names them. And though they don't always share the same warbling quality as seen here, I, I believe that we've seen them as far back in the pages of Salem's Lot with the Marston House. I believe that reality is very, very thin there. Um, and we certainly see a Thinny um, in the mist where just the uh, creatures from Todash space come boiling out uh, into our world. Number three, sometimes they come back. At one point, Jake tells Roland there are ghosts. Sometimes there are ghosts, and sometimes they come back. Sometimes they had come back, as you remember, is a short story that King published in Night Shift. Number four is Garland. Roland says that John Farson had begun as a stage robber in Garland, a magical land referenced in the pages of Eyes of the Dragon. He has later shown a vision from the grapefruit of a poison-tipped knife from Garland that would have been used to kill Stephen Deshane. Now, here is one that I was so happy to discover in this reread, and that's the Peddler. So shame on me for not catching this before, but the Peddler Moon has come out, and he writes, and I already reread this, um, but I'm going to read it again. A perfect summer moon, huge and orange. It loomed in the darkening violet swim of the sky like a crashing planet. On its face as clear as anyone had ever seen it was the peddler, he who came out of the knowns with a pack clearly visible over one cringing shoulder. Behind it, the orange light seemed to flame like hellfire. This, to me, sounds a lot like a certain peddler we all know, the proprietor of Needful Things, Mr. Leland Gaunt. Number six, Sylvia Pitson. At one point, Coral Thorne remembers when the wandering preacher woman Sylvia Pitson had traveled through Mehis. Number seven is the touch. Elaine John has the touch, a psychic ability we, to get glimpses of the future and intuitions. 
no doubt that this same ability, um, this is the same ability that we know by a different name, The Shining. Number eight is Dim. Both Rhea and Walter use their magic arts to make themselves dim. Number nine is the white. Hear me well, Rhea, daughter of none, and understand me well. I have come here under the name of Will Dearborn, but Dearborn is not my name and is the affiliation I serve. More, tis all which lies behind the affiliation, tis the power of the white. You have crossed the way of our Ka, and I warn you only this once. Do not cross it again. So the white is the force of good uh, in, in the universe that has popped up in a numer, number of Stephen King stories. Number 10 is the turtle. During Roland's vision with the grapefruit, he hears the voice of the turtle, the turtle being uh, first seen in the pages of It. Number 11 is Thinny and the Raft. So the Thinny's appearance here of a green swamp is very similar to the oil slick in the raft to the point where I think that's intentional on King's part. Both hypnotize their prey and burn to the touch. Um, Debaria. So Roland says that the second time he saw the grapefruit was three days after he'd come home to Gilead. His mother wasn't home because she was at a retreat in Debaria, a retreat we'll hear more of in the stories told within Wind Through the Keyhole. Shimi. Um, we are definitely going to see Shimi again. And number 14 is My Life For You. And the TikTok man utters this before he dies. So all that's left now, guys, is the uh, most important quote. Um, the text, the piece of text that I, I feel just really sums up the novel. Um, you know, the, what, what is the heart of the novel. And it opens up chapter one of part three, Beneath the Huntress Moon. And it writes, True love, like any other strong and addicting drug, is boring. Once the tale of encounter and discovery is told, kisses quickly grow stale and caresses tiresome. Except, of course, to those who share the kisses who give and take the caresses while every sound and color of the world seems to deepen and brighten around them. As with any other strong drug, true first love is really only interesting to those who have become its prisoners. And, as is true of any other strong drug and addicting drug, true first love is dangerous. Now, final thoughts. Yeah, yeah, this one's my favorite. I love The Wastelands because it hits a high, but for all of the world building and mythologizing he does in the third book, he personalizes the characters in this one to heartbreaking results. The imagery throughout the novel is ripe, and his use of language is probably his most poetic. From the rain of stars reflected in Roland's eyes after Eddie's dream of the rose, to the brilliant moonlight of Susan's hair as she rides Roland's horse upon first meeting. And King knows how to build up his scenes, beginning with Eddie's triumphant takedown of Blaine, the incredible introduction to Rhea, the simple beauty of Roland's first meeting with uh, Susan, Cuthbert's drop on the big coffin hunters, the uh, fanboy service moments, uh, like in this, you know, where he references the stand. It's one scene after the next of King completely owning his craft on every level, on every level. It's a beautifully rendered book. There is never a dull moment. 
every single page is dedicated to something, whether it's advancing the plot or advancing the characters. And The Wizard in Glass to me is just the perfect combination of a strong plot with strong character work. It's all of Stephen King's greatest strengths um, in one. And I feel as though, I might have said this about The Wastelands, but okay, so everything I say about The Wastelands, just Wastelands, take and then place in my thoughts now for Wizard and Glass. It just becomes the high mark of the series. And uh, actually, it's it's kind of the, some ways of looking at it. It's, it's the last Dark Tower novel along a certain path of thought. The next three Dark Tower books are written in a different way that King had written the uh, Dark Tower books leading up to that moment. And the last three Dark Tower books are um, prompted by a near-death experience that he had. So he knew that he had to finish the Dark Tower. And the near-death experience um, was a major inspiration to how he finishes his ultimate story. So looking at the Dark Tower as a whole, you kind of need to make a separation. There's books one through four, and there's books five through seven. And books, it's even hard to distinguish book five, book six, and book seven because it's really just one long-ass book. So I will definitely get more into that uh, when I get to Wolves of the Kala. So at this point, you might be thinking, like, well, I should probably read Wind Through the Keyhole next. But no, you really shouldn't. Uh, just because Wind Through the Keyhole uh, was published, so it was published after The Dark Tower, and it takes place in between Wizard and Glass and Wolves of the Kala, you should not read it in that order. You need to read it after the events of The Dark Tower to fully appreciate what Stephen King is doing with it. And I will definitely get to that during my review of Wind Through the Keyhole. But it's, it's like people that make the argument of watching... How should you let someone watch the Star Wars movies if they've never seen them for the first time? You should certainly not do it in chronological order, that's for sure. Um, you have to go... Um, episodes four through seven, four through six, sorry, my bad. Just lost some geek cred there. So four through six, and then episodes one through three. Because first of all, there's a way in which storylines play out, surprises hit, emotional beats are worked through, and the a prequel will play upon your knowledge and experiences that you had while reading the books that in our time came out earlier but chronologically come out later but happen to take place before. Um, it's just from an emotional standpoint reading these things you really should not read Winsor Keyhole between Wizard and Glass and Wills of the Column. But that's up to you. If you want to do it, go for it. It's just I, I don't see why you would. But that's that's my opinion. Okay, guys. Um, so as I have done with the other Dark Tower episodes, uh, I'm going to be releasing a bonus uh, edition as well where I read a, a listener email 
and I get into some of the, the real heavy, meaty stuff of the Dark Tower. Um, so I, I just kind of want to avoid as many spoilers as possible for the end end of the Dark Tower. So I'll get to that in my bonus edition, which will be the last bonus edition. And I need to warn you guys again, I think I talked about this during my uh, anniversary episode this past summer, but I am going to have, the next time we are going to um, discuss the Dark Tower will be the sequel to the Talisman Black House. There will be a bonus edition there. And then we are going to read the short story collection, Everything's Eventual, and I'm releasing two episodes. So I don't necessarily want to call it a bonus edition, but there's going to be one episode in Everything's Eventual where I review a number of the short stories in that collection. And then on the same day, I'm releasing another review dedicated to the two short stories contained within Everything's Eventual that are connected to the Dark Tower, the two stories being Everything's Eventual and The Little Sisters of Alluria. One is a um, tangential, is that the word? Um, connection to the Dark Tower. There's a character that we will see again in the page of the Dark Tower. And Little Sisters of Alluria stars Roland. It's, it's a short story that um, showcases a younger Roland, not quite as young as he was here. It's a Roland after the fall of Gilead on his way um, before he has um, caught up with the, the Man in Black. And it's, it's a quick, short uh, little yarn, but it's definitely a good one. Um, but this will be the last Dark Tower, Dark Tower book that gets its own bonus review. So please keep that in mind. If you have not finished the series, by the time I get to uh, Wizard and Glass, all breaks are off. I'm not... I'm not going to dance around spoilers. I'm getting straight into the ending of the Dark Tower, starting with Wolves of the Kala, Song of Susanna, and the Dark Tower. Because these three novels were published so close to each other, because it, it was really just Stephen King hammering away uh, on his computer um, and splitting these three books up, I am treating it almost as one long review. Um, I haven't recorded it yet, but I have finished all three novels, and I talk about the ending um, of the Dark Tower in the pages of, or in the in the uh, Wolves of the Collar review. So just keep that in mind if you are trying to um, finish the Dark Tower and keep up with these reviews. You have a little while, not not that much, but you do have some time to to finish up the the Dark Tower. So guys, love the Wizard and Glass. Uh, can't wait to get to the other Dark Tower novels. And next week, stick around while I review Stephen King's lonesome story of uh, his haunting love story, uh, Bag of Bones. Um, which was something that I, I was really looking to revisiting because I remember reading at the time thinking it was just wonderfully written and just beautiful and there's definitely great uh, descriptions in that book. So I'm looking forward to getting to that review. All right, everyone, uh, so stick around for the, the bonus edition and may you have long days and pleasant nights and I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast.